Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California, from my new house. I'm pretty excited. I'm out of my shitty rental. And I'm in a in a nice house now, and I uh, we had Thanksgiving here last night. It was really good to just you know be in a nice space. Space matters so much. It's crazy how much in the last year uh, I was in a rental that I didn't really care for, and I was just uh, I felt like it really got me down. Anyway, hopefully you had a good Thanksgiving holiday. Mine has been interesting. Um, we went to uh, Minnesota. Actually, I took my daughters to Minnesota because my middle daughter wanted to go to a Minnesota Vikings game for her birthday in Minnesota while visiting grandma. So we did that when we got slaughtered by the Dallas Cowboys. I have to tell you, I don't like the Cowboys. I like Dallas-Fort Worth as a real estate market, but man, I don't like those Cowboys. So it was very painful to get destroyed the way we did. But of course, we could turn around one in Thanksgiving, so that was okay. But my daughter was pretty upset by the whole situation and being her birthday present and all. Anyway, today is another holiday episode of Ask Buck. And when we come back, we have uh, lots of interesting questions and uh, hopefully some answers to those questions that will satisfy you. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. 
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Let's get started right away. I think uh, I have to ask you your pardon here because I am I'm kind of sick right now. It's this is like I don't know what's going around like this thing. I'm coughing up a lung and and sneezing and all that stuff. But you know when you have kids, it just happens that way, I guess. First question is from Brad Kleeman, who was kind enough to do an audio message here. So let's go to him first. Hi, Buck, uh, Brad in Georgia. In a recent podcast, I heard that you are not a fan of uh, oil and gas investments. I just want your take on uh, the details of why, if you've had some bad experiences. Uh, I know the oil has changed uh, dramatically, you know, last 10 years or so. Uh, good times, bad times, etc. Um, anyway, if you can expand on that, that would be great. Thank you. Good question, Brad. Uh, you know, where do I start? You know, the problem. No, listen. My problem is not with oil and gas as a commodity, but private placement, specifically in the oil and gas drilling sector, for me has been nothing but bad. Um, so, why did I ever do them in the first place? Well. The reason you're probably looking into it is the tax advantages. 100% bonus depreciation of the investment in the first year, typically, uh, and tax mitigation of any actual dividends. Those are the selling points. And on top of that, it's not it's not just for, you know, it, you can apply it to W-2 income. That's the only, the only thing that you could apply to W-2 income except for conservation easements, which are, you know, right now are not a not a particularly good idea to do but this was a a this has been a huge selling point to uh oil and gas investments and private placements and drilling for some time especially in sort of our demographic of high paid professionals high paid w2 folks and stuff like that but there's a problem there's you know Let's just say this, out of three oil and gas investments I have made, I have never come close to even getting my capital back. And in my view, there are multiple reasons for this, and everyone's maybe a little bit different, but done in the most honest way uh, from the operator, drilling for oil and gas is a hit or miss situation. Either you hit oil or you don't. And if you hit oil, it might be a really productive well, or it could be just like, you know, an average well, whatever. Uh, but the problem is that there is this uh, chance that you won't hit oil at all. So that in itself is massively speculative right there. But beyond the speculation, there are other problems that I have encountered. Um, again, the way these things are structured often provides... Um, what I would call a heads I win, tails you lose type situation for the operators. The operators take significant fees up front, whether or not there's profitability. And if there is profitability, there's usually a pretty generous waterfall to the operator. Now, I, I'm, I don't take away, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that the operators should not, um, you know, make money on this. The challenge is that it's such a speculative space to begin with that effectively you're paying them to take risk. And, you know, on the upside, they only can really win um, either way, whether or not they, you know, whether or not they hit oil because they've made money off you in the first place. So the last point is, I think, just 
you know, unfortunately, my experience, oil and gas attracts some really unsavory characters, okay? The field is full of charlatans and flat-out crooks. And it goes for oil and gas. You can, you know, we want to talk about other types of things that are associated with this energy space. I know there was one investment that a lot of people have been talking about, but the CEO of it isn't even, if you Google him, he's not even on Google and is supposed to be a huge player in oil and gas. So uh, in carbon and all this kind of thing. So I would just be really careful in this space. In the past, uh, I've, uh, you know, unfortunately interviewed some oil and gas people in the space because frankly, a lot of people who listen to this podcast can benefit from those spectacular tax um, benefits. But, you know, uh, the the only problem is, you, you, you know, if you don't get any of your capital back or very little of it, certainly don't make a profit, you're probably better off donating the money to a good cause and take that as a deduction instead. Anyway, I will never do oil and gas again. All right, next question. Okay, this one's from Gregory. He says, Hi team, been following you for a while. Love the content you put out. I love the idea of using a line of credit to purchase more cash value whole life insurance and build up net worth that way. Right now, it's hard to get that 2% return difference on home equity line of credit interest rate, which will be over 6% this week, and the insurance dividend around 5% currently. What are, the, what are your thoughts on time periods where the cost of financing insurance is more than the insurance dividend? So uh, rather than having me answer this question, I thought it might be a good idea to actually have... Rod Zabriskie answered this question, so I forwarded it to him, and he gave us this answer. Hi, everyone. Rod Zabriskie here, and I'm going to take this next question from Gregory Tukakis. Uh, he asks, been following you for a while and love the content you put out. I love the idea of using a line of credit to purchase more cash value, whole life insurance, and build up net worth that way. But right now, it's hard to get that 2% return difference on HELOC interest rates, which will be over 6% this week, and the insurance dividend around 5% currently. What are your thoughts on time periods where the cost of financing insurance is more than the insurance dividend? Great question and a timely question. I think it's something that a lot of people have been thinking about. If uh, you want a more detailed answer, go back to episode 341 where we got into a lot more detail, talked through the difference in interest rates on really all of the different strategies we're doing, and especially as it relates to what you're talking about here, which uh, recently we call the Wealth Accelerator, the strategy that we're using most, uh, most frequently inside of the premium finance space. And the first point to, to talk about is that the Wealth Accelerator was built four times like this. Or another, put another way, we are assuming a 2% average spread across a long period of time. And that includes, we know there will be times where we have a smaller spread than that or, or even a negative spread. But we'll also have other times where, where it's a lot higher. And when you stretch that out over a long period of time, uh, so for example, if you, if you look historically, uh, that 2% spread is something that we would have gotten across all 15-year time frames. In other words, there's never been a 15-year time frame where we had less than a 2% spread. So 
uh, we feel like that's a pretty conservative number to use. And that's what we use in our projections. So, but it's a fair question. What happens in times like now where we do have that kind of negative spread? Interest rates are going up. Uh, the market's been struggling. So to the extent we're using index universal life, that kind of exacerbates the problem. Uh, first of all, the way the wealth accelerator works is we're putting the, our money in in year one and then beginning in year two or later, someone starts financing the, the funding of that policy, the premiums going into it. Timing the market would be great. Getting everything lined up to be perfect would be great. But I think the best way to think of it is that it's a, a long-term strategy. So trying to get it timed perfectly on the way in is probably unrealistic, but especially because of that year lag. We're not going to start financing until a year after someone starts the strategy. So the, if the idea was to pick the right time to get in, well, we have no idea what's going to happen in a year. So we could have uh, gotten past the difficult times and interest rates could have dropped. Market could be doing really well. We kind of missed some of that initial good times after the bad and that, that inevitably comes. My thought is, and, and the, our, kind of the reaction of a lot of our clients is to to get in, especially right now where there aren't a lot of deals to be had in, in the real estate and some of these other things that we're, we're accustomed to investing in. We'll take those dollars and put it into something like this and do it now while, while you have the money sitting there. It's between deals. It's going to sit there for a while. Why not get it to work for you? Get get started on this strategy and and get the time working for you. The second really important point that I want to bring up is that there are different places where we can hold these loans. In general, we talk about keeping them with a bank, a line of credit with a bank. But at times like this, when interest rates are going up, uh, we can actually have the loan held by the insurance company. And we actually get better treatment in a situation like this on the whole life side because there's a direct link between the interest we're earning in the policy for that portion of the cash value that's acting as collateral. There's a direct link between what we're earning there and the interest rate that we're paying on the loan. So interest rates going up, it actually is more advantageous to carry the loan with the insurance company. And then on the IUL side, uh, there are loan options where they have uh, a maximum loan interest rate that they charge. So again, carry the loan with the bank when the interest rates are lower, but as, if, as they're going up like they are now, then we can carry that loan instead, move that over into the insurance company's loan option and limit the interest rate exposure that we have. So that is something we're continually doing is, is making sure that we're in the most advantageous loan position. We have relationships with a lot of different banks. And then, I, like I mentioned, we can carry the loan with the insurance company. So there are a lot of things that we can do to minimize the that risk and that exposure. Um, get us past the stormy times and, and into these times where market recovers, where interest rates drop, but we're, we're able to produce more in the policies because of that, I call it the interest rate reset. The insurance companies are able to produce longer term, higher returns uh, based on the higher interest rates than what we see reflected in the loans. So a few thoughts to think about as it relates to that, but again, go check out episode number 341 to get a more in-depth answer on that question. Thank you very much for that, Rod Zabriskie, and hopefully that answers your question, Gregory. But again, if you're interested in learning more, go to wealthformulabanking.com, watch the webinar, or as you as uh, Rod mentioned, there was an entire episode that really focused on the accelerator program, which you might want to listen to as well. 
Uh, next question is from Terry Barker. Terry says, uh, hi, Buck. Any thoughts on how to partner with a family member on their first real estate purchase? This will be their first home and probably will become a rental in a few years. I'm picturing we provide the down payment and they pay the mortgage from there. Would you recommend a partnership slash LLC? If so, uh, what should it be? Can we put in the down payment of, say, $25,000 and take all the bonus depreciation? Any other considerations? So, Terry, let me start again, as I always do, saying I'm not a CPA or an attorney, so I can't give you taxes. I said, let me tell you, let me tell you what I would be thinking about if I were you uh, before I consulted my CPA and tax attorney. I would be thinking, first of all, um, for any real estate, I personally would use an LLC uh, that is a partnership and this for tax purposes. Um, so that's that. However, there here is the challenge you have uh, with regard to taking bonus depreciation. Uh, if if one of the owners of that LLC actually lives in the house, it's it's not really uh, a rental anymore. I mean, that's something you're going to probably need to run by your CPA, but you know, uh, if, if you're actually occupying the house and you're one of the owners, you know, I think maybe that 50% or however percent you are, uh, maybe that, that comes out in bonus depreciation, but I don't think you can take the full depreciation if you are, are basically putting somebody else as an equal partner on that LLC. Now, if you bought the house, yourself uh, in your name put the down payment out and rented it out uh, then of course you could take the bonus depreciation uh, and they they would pay rent right uh, but of course in that situation it, it sounds like you know what you're hoping for is that they have ownership and they wouldn't have ownership uh, in the house in that situation so just thinking out loud another idea might be well you could buy the house and after a period of time uh, sell to the, you know, to your family member. Uh, and if they can't afford it right off, they could, you know, you could do seller financing, uh, which could be layered on top of, of whatever mortgage you have. And in, in that case, you know, you, you could kind of transfer it over that way. Another thought, maybe you just buy it and rent it out to them for a few years. And when it becomes a rental, you could gift it to them. Anyway, hopefully you have a good CPA who you can run some of these ideas past. You know, I'll tell you, um, you should run anything I say past CPA or tax attorney. Uh, and if you have a good one, they will welcome the ideas. And this is really important. I got to tell you, I can't tell you how many times I've brought up tax strategies and ideas for my own situation that ended up getting implemented that, you know, that the tax professional ends up taking credit for. But in reality, if even if you have a really good tax advisor, you're the one who knows your situation the best. So if you, you know, if you learn about ideas and things you know right away, if they apply to you, it's really important that you engage your tax professional and and bring ideas to them. All right, next question. Hi, Buck. Can you give an overview of how the bonus depreciation works over the life cycle of a syndication? If we put in 100k, then our base is 100k. With say eighty thousand dollars of depreciation, our basis is twenty k. Three or four years of return of capital distribution totaling twenty k would reduce the basis to zero. 
With a sale of $180,000, a $0 basis, our gain is $180K. Or is it just $100K? Uh, what do the taxes look like? So this is a, an interesting question, and I think it gets a little complicated by answering. But the way your question is laid out, um, let's just try to use some more simple numbers to try to illustrate this. And before I begin that again, remember, I am not a tax professional uh, and so I'm basically working through numbers like you are. So just think of me as a, a guy who knows a thing about a thing or two and, um, and uh, is just kind of working through stuff with you. But just as guy here is not a CPA, you should run this stuff by your own CPA or tax, uh, other, other type of tax advisor, tax attorney, whatever. Okay, but let's let's go to your question now. Say you invest a hundred thousand dollars in a syndication. What does that represent? It represents a portion of the equity needed to acquire the property. That's what it represents. It doesn't represent, you know, uh, all equity, right? Like it's it's or it is it does represent equity, but it doesn't really reflect what you are purchasing because. Most real estate syndications use leverage. Let's assume 70% LTV in this case. That means 30% down and the bank gives a loan for the rest. So your $100,000 goes towards that 30% down. And then you are getting the benefit of, uh, of the bank loans. You're buying more of this property with your money um, than just, you know, the the equity that you're putting in, you're also leveraging, uh, you're also using the bank for leverage to own more of this property, right? So uh, bottom line is your 100K represents equity, but you also benefit from the leverage. Now, many have seen uh, in the past few years, K1s come back and show 100% bonus depreciation, and that ends up completely offsetting an investment. So how is that actually happening mechanically? Um, again, I'm going to use some basic numbers, you know, um, round numbers. And let's remember that bonus depreciation in real estate depends on something called a cost segregation analysis. And what the study does is separate the property into real property and personal property. Real property, it's the stuff you can't pull out and throw out in the front lawn and it depreciates at 27 and a half years. Personal property is the rest. And that has a depreciation schedule of five years. Now, however, since the Trump tax changes, we've been able to take all five years of the personal property depreciation in the first year, 100% of it. Of course, that phases out in the next few years. It goes 80% next year, and then 60, et cetera. Now, as it turns out, residential real estate ends up being about, on average, about 30% personal property and 70% real property. Now, that's not some sort of fact. I'm just telling you, I have done a lot of cost segregation analysis and a lot of properties, and it usually ends up being approximately 30% personal property and 70% real property. So why is that important? So in this example, you are depreciating 30% of the total acquisition price. However, since you and the other investors only brought 30% of the acquisition price to the table in the form of equity, your investment essentially washes out uh, with depreciation. Okay, 
So after a period of time, the property gets sold uh, and you end up, uh, the money that you end up, hopefully you've made a profit, uh, you're going to have money come out that will be principal, depreciation, recapture, and long-term capital gains. So say um, that $100,000 that you invested turned into 200000 If you invested the whole thing back into another syndication with the same leverage and cost segregation assumptions, you would wipe out all the gains again, right? That is what we call the golden hamster wheel phrase. Of course, uh, this will be a little less gold as bonus depreciation phases out, but it will extremely it will still be extremely effective long term for tax mitigation, even with lower numbers. Now, let's say you did not reinvest that money and take advantage of the hamster wheel. What would your tax liability look like? Well, since you took 30% of depreciation um, initially, your cost basis would not be zero. It would be $70,000, right? You invested 100000 You took 30% as depreciation. So your cost basis would be $70,000. That would leave you with, um, that would be then your, your, your principal return. Then you would have $30,000 in depreciation recapture, which is taxed at 25%, and then $100,000 taxed at long-term capital gains, right? So there is, uh, notably, the, the recapture is less than ordinary income tax. So even if you didn't reinvest your money, you would have an advantage, a uh, tax advantage just through tax arbitrage. You're paying recapture of 25% instead of, um, you know, whatever your tax rate is, it's probably closer to 35% or more. Uh, and so that's the trade that you're making. So either way it comes out, uh, you come out ahead. However, obviously, if you can reinvest that money, uh, that is a, a big advantage. Now, I should point out, too, that because the $70,000 in this case was principal, if you reinvest that again, even with 80% depreciation, you're going to end up wiping pretty much all of your taxable uh, gains and recapture. You're going to wash all that out still, even with 80% uh, bonus depreciation. Anyway, okay, let's move on to the next question. Hopefully that wasn't too confusing. If it was, go listen to it again. Uh, it was uh, kind of a mouthful. Okay, next question is from Evan. He says, interested in your thoughts on a situation where someone has invested in syndications using debt that had an interest rate of about 3.5% and now the interest rate is ticking up to almost 7.5%. Do you think it makes sense to stay the course and just wait for rates uh, to tick back down or to start paying some of the loan? Oh, man, your problem is one that is facing businesses and real estate investors everywhere, right? Um, so I'm not going to tell you what to do, but rather let me just kind of help with a framework for you to think about if you wish. Um, if we go back to the fundamentals of leverage, as long as your return is higher than the interest rate, you will amplify your gains, right? If your interest rate exceeds your return, then it will amplify your losses. It's that simple. So 
the bottom line is your returns are going to have to be higher than the interest rate in order for you not to lose uh, not to lose money and then actually to amplify your money so i guess this really all you know uh, really all depends on how you see your investment panning out and um you know it's going to require you to take some calculated risk and think about that uh, i will say that personally, I've decided that right now it's appropriate for me to de deleverage a little bit uh, wherever possible. Um, I think because of volatile interest rates, you know, it makes me nervous. Uh, so anything that is certainly I have eliminated anything that um, in my personal control uh, that has any floating rates to it, um, which wasn't much to begin with, but I've gotten rid of it. Um, and frankly, unless you're borrowing at a fixed rate for five to 10 years, I, I would personally be hesitant to leverage much, uh, with any kind of floating rate at this point. So no one predicted, uh, rates to go up as fast as they have. It, it's really been unprecedented given the fact that the effects of interest rate hikes usually don't really show up in the economy for six months. So the fed has just gone absolutely crazy and bonkers raising rates. Uh, I think hopefully it, it will do what they're hoping that does which is to squash inflation but it is going to be painful uh i anticipate a recession coming up so i would say you know while you pay off a little bit of 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 your floating debt uh if you decide to do so and i probably would frankly uh i do anticipate um a recession coming so you know you might be in a good position to buy some distressed assets and make up for uh, any haircuts you took from the past. Okay, next question from William. This is Buck. How are you? Crazy times. Yes, indeed, William. They are crazy times. I have a few questions. Best place to park your cash you know of? Well, that's a hard question. Again, it's opinion. But I certainly do like the idea of, of wealth formula banking and related life insurance retirement plans. I think the track record there speaks for itself. You know, these companies have been around for you know, 100 years. They've continued to, to perform through the Great Depression. They've continued to perform through hyperinflation in the 80s. Uh, it is a, you know, it's something that's been very reliable, right? And also... Um, in addition to that, of course, you could also do real estate with, you know, lower leverage, um, you know, something that, that seems, you know, much more uh, conservative than maybe in the past. Um, now is not the time, in my opinion, to leverage to the hilt. So, so I think, you know, some of those types of things. I think also, um, if you're interested in investing, not just capital preservation, I think looking at businesses that have some component of recession-proof nature to them is very useful, and you may see some of that coming down uh, in our investment group soon. Uh, for infinite banking, he says, the, he has another question. He says, for infinite banking, is the goal never to pay off the loan? Uh, I wouldn't say that the goal is not to pay off the loan, but that is certainly the way that you avoid ever paying taxes on the money you borrow, right? Because the whole concept is that when you, that you're basically taking these loans, um, and, you know, and you're, you're paying them back a little bit, you're paying the loan payments, but pres presumably you're going to have 
um, you're not taking this out as income. You're taking it out as loans, right? And that's why it's tax-free income to you. And um, when you when you die, the policy itself will then pay off your loans, and your heirs won't have to pay any taxes on the insurance proceeds or anything else. So that's the idea. So is it the goal to never pay off the loan? Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it kind of is in that regard. I mean, that's what the idea is, is that like you're just borrowing and borrowing and paying back some, but you're mo- more borrowing than paying back. And then ultimately you die and the policy pays, um, pays out to your heirs and some of whatever's left in debt gets wiped out by the policy policy proceeds okay and then there's another component to this question he says also is infinite banking in infinite banking is it wise to take a loan out for the sole purpose to use the loan to overfund the policy building cash value in the policy with the goal of never paying the loan off i was at an investment conference and several speakers on investment uh, on infinite banking mentioned this um, they did say insurance companies and agents do hate it. Wondering your input on how to max out the infinite banking. Well, that's a little confusing to me, what what you're saying. Uh, it sounds like what you've heard might be a combination of a few different strategies. So there, and that, and, and that we've talked about uh, in, in through the, uh, through Rod and Christian, um, so wealth formula banking is what we call uh, wealth formula banking is really overfunded whole life um, infinite banking, right? Um, the idea here is that you use that to leverage uh, from, not to necessarily borrow uh, and to overfund, but rather to overfund and borrow from to amplify your returns on other investments. So that's 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 very important. That's a very different concept than what you're talking about. I think what you're talking about is the use of premium finance, right? Like getting someone to finance the premium to overfund. And that's typically used in the context of indexed universal um, life plans. Uh, Basically, these policies are policies that track the S&P 500 they may have a cap and a floor, you know, they may say, um, you know, you can participate up into up to 10%, uh, but we won't, and we won't let you go below 1% or zero or something like that. In other words, there's a limit on your gains. Uh, and there's, there's also a limit on uh, your ability to lose money. So what you can do and what, uh, I think is a very, uh, actually brilliant strategy is, is, is to leverage these policies so that you can amplify uh, any returns you get. So even if you get 10% growth with a 10% cap, cap, the leverage will make uh, your return significantly higher than that. It's no different from leverage in real estate in that sense. Um, if you think about it, if you had a cap rate of 10 and then took a loan on it, you'd probably end up with a significantly higher return, maybe closer to you know 30% or so. So the idea in... Um, Bottom line is, I think there's a couple of different concepts here that might be getting entangled, but I think that the um, borrowing premium finance is 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 really probably related more uh, to the index universal policies. Uh, we have this 
Uh, Rod and Krishna have, have a few different policy structures that use this strategy. The one I like best, uh, we've talked about on the show recently, called the Wealth Accelerator. You can learn all, all about that by going to wealthformulabanking.com. But again, just to summarize, Wealth Formula Banking itself, whole life, typically what we do there, overfund and use it as leverage for amplifying investments. And the other, uh, the other way to do it is to actually use premium finance. And this is typically seen in index universal plans, although it could be in whole life as well. And ultimately, you're, you're, but in this situation, you're not, you're not trying to like borrow money and deploy into investments the way you are uh, with wealth formula banking. Um, it kind of wouldn't make sense, right? I think what you're trying to do here is overfund and grow at, um, you know, a leveraged rate relative to the S&P 500 or whatever the fixed rate is, even if it was on whole life. Um, people don't usually do whole life here because this is probably a little bit more aggressive. You're trying to grow your money faster. So most of the time you'll see premium finance in the context of uh, indexed universal uh, life plans. Anyway, hopefully that makes sense. But uh, if it doesn't, go to wealthformulabanking.com. If you watch the Wealth Formula Banking um, webinar there and then compare it to the Wealth Accelerator, I think it'll make uh, you'll see the difference. All right. Uh, last question, I believe, for this show is Supreet. He says, Hi, Buck, I'd like to ask a question regarding asset protection. Do you recommend individual LLCs for each property worth more than 500000 in in Massachusetts? Do you recommend any asset protection advisor? Okay, well, uh, Supreet, let me start by saying that I'm not a CPA or an attorney. <laughs> How many times have I said this in the show, right? But so any sort of tax legal advice here it, for me is, uh, is just not kosher. So I'm not going to give you advice. That said, I generally don't like myself to have multiple properties in any one LLC. Um, you know, the, the idea behind the LLC is to protect it from your personal liability. Um, so once there are multiple properties within the LLC, they are subject to each other's liability. So I think the question you need to ask yourself is, you know, what assets are you comfortable having in the same LLC? Um, and, and part of that decision-making process may be how much uh, money it costs or how expensive the property is. Um, but generally speaking, I would say that the cost of having another LLC will be uh, will will be a nice insurance plan uh, to make sure that the liability of one property doesn't hit the other. So again, the way I do things is that I have a separate entity for every actual property, you know, it, it, each individual property that I own. Um, and I should differentiate this concept between, you know, when you have LLCs for real property owned, like houses or your own apartment buildings, uh, that's different from when you invest into uh, limited partnership syndications. Because remember, when you invest into a limited partnership syndication, you don't have liability from the investment. You have no liability. That's why it's called a limited liability partnership. So because of this, personally, I use one holding company 
to invest into, you know, multiple syndications. Um, I would suggest you go back to some of our asset protect, uh, protection podcasts to, to learn more. Um, I think specifically with Doug Laudmel, you asked for a specific uh, tax advisor. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Doug. Doug's my asset protection attorney. Uh, you can uh, you can find a webinar that he did, I think, on asset protection on wealthformula.com. All right, well, let's take a break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it and take this chance to say thank you. I'm very grateful for you being my audience for the last, I don't know how many years I've been doing this now. I've been doing this for a while, but it's been a, it's been a great ride. And, um, you know, happy holidays to you. That's it for me. This week on Wealth Formula Podcast, this is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safe You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.